1: kevin is a retired united states army lieutenant colonel who has studied ufos for more than 50 years his military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and ufo research kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about ufos considered to be one of the leading experts on the roswell ufo crash Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now, here's the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
2: And good evening. Welcome to A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. In just a minute, I'm going to be joined by Colonel Charles Halt, he of Rendlesham Forest fame. But before, I'm going to go off on another one of my copyrighted rants. I was looking for some information on the Internet the other day and came across a website that uh, mentioned my name and that actually paired me with um, Philip Corso telling us, everybody, that we'd both been in military intelligence. But then they went off and said that I had been a member of the OF, Air Force OSI. Patently untrue. I uh, was in Air Force intelligence, that is true. I started my career, as I've mentioned before, as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, an aircraft commander. I uh, went to college, took our Air Force ROTC because as a warrant officer, we were allowed to do that. Uh, the Air, uh, Air Force had promised me a flying slot, but they reneged on that. And I ended up uh, doing some uh, reserve duty with the 442nd Tactical Airlift Wing in, at Richard Gebauer. At the end of that tour, I was asked by the commanding general if I wanted to join the reserve side of the house, and I could have a slot as an uh, intelligence officer or the general's aide. Being a dummy, I picked intelligence. The better job would, of course, been the general's aide. And uh, so I spent my time there as an intelligence officer, an air intelligence officer, and when that tour was over, I was uh, released from the uh, reserve, called a month later, and asked to take over as director of intelligence at the 928th Tactical Airlift group at uh, O'Hare, which I did. So I spent a lot of time in Air Force intelligence, but the point simply is, what I was doing there as an intel- air intelligence officer, which meant I was looking for information, gathering information from open sources as well as classified sources about uh, the areas our air crews would be operating in, what, ex- what they could experience uh, in those countries, if there was some kind of political turmoil that might affect the mission. If there were things at the airfield that uh, could affect the mission, and one of the things, of course, would be the emplacement of anti aircraft around civilian airfields, which I thought was pretty strange, but we had to talk about all those things. The point simply is I was air intelligence. I had nothing to do with Air Force o- OSI. I sent a letter to the host of that website and told him that was patently untrue and to remove that. That's the rant for today. Now, Charles Halt will be joining me in just a moment. He is a retired United States Air Force colonel and a former base commander of RAF Bentwaters near Woodbridge, Suff- Suffolk, England. After serving in Vietnam, Japan, and Korea, he was assigned to Bentwaters as deputy commander. The Rendlesham Force incident of late December 1980 happened shortly afterwards. After retiring from the Air Force in 1991, Halt made his first public Appearance in a television documentary where he confirmed the authenticity of the event and of a letter and tape that had surfaced about those events. In June 2010, Halt issued an affidavit in which he summarized the events, concluding, I believe the objects that I saw at close quarter were extraterrestrial in origin and that the security service of both the United States and the United Kingdom have attempted both then and now to suppress the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham Forest and Air Force, or I'm sorry, RAF Bentwaters by the use of well publicized methods of disinformation. His book, The Halt Perspective, was published in 2016, tells the story of his sighting in detail, as well as providing important information about other aspects of the case. And I have a copy of it sitting on my desk even as we speak. Colonel Halt, welcome to A Different Perspective.
3: Well, thank you. My pleasure.
2: <laughs> that was a long introduction you had to sit through, and I'm sorry about that. I, uh,
3: I can handle that.
2: <laughs> okay. I have got a couple of questions for you that uh, goes off in bizarre directions. As I'm reading through your book, I was looking at Jim Peniston's book. I don't know if you've seen that or not. I have. And... and um, I I think both of you talk about security services doing investigations into this event, and I I assume that would include the Air Force OSI? Uh,
3: Yes and no. I think the OSI in this particular case at RF Bentwaters was used to facilitate an investigation. How does that sound?
2: Uh, Mysterious.
3: Okay. Well, let me explain. I don't think think the OSI commander and his staff were directly involved. What they did is they facilitated uh, the, how shall I say, debriefing, if you will. That's an interesting term of the individuals, most of them involved. uh, But they were not from RAF Bentwaters. They were from somewhere else. I can only speculate. I have a pretty good idea.
2: Well, they weren't other OSI guys coming in from elsewhere then.
3: No. No, they were beyond the OSI, believe me.
2: Uh, And your speculation is, where did they come from?
3: Uh, I would say a three-lettered agency. One of them starts with a C.
2: Does it end with an A?
3: Oh, you're a pretty good guesser. (laughs) (laughs) So you think they were CIA guys that came in? Well, see, I didn't understand or know this. I was very trusting at the time. After the incident occurred, uh, the OSI commander was a good personal friend. I mean, we socialized together. I knew him very well. And I said to him, do you have any interest in this figure? And he would, you know, want me to tell him what all happened and give me a, you know, a, how shall I say, a debriefing, if you will. <clears throat> and he said, no, we don't have anything to do with this sort of stuff. Well, then I found out years later that uh, most of the young enlisted troops that were involved were brought into his office at uh, request of his agency, and outside individuals from certain other agencies used, uh, how should I say, drugs and hypnosis and worked on them and probably created a lot of screen memories.
2: So you're suggesting, by, and, and uh, let me preface this by saying that um, the last time Penniston, according to his book, saw Burroughs at Bentwaters, he dropped him off in front of the uh, AFOSI building there.
3: I don't think he dropped him off. He saw him going in.
2: God, he, well, he said he drove him to the building, and, and so I'm going well, in. Well, maybe
3: so. he did. I, I, I don't remember the details of that. I wasn't personally there.
2: Well, yeah, and the point simply is, we know Burroughs went into the uh, OSI building. And Burroughs and says
3: say, to this day he doesn't remember doing it, which fits.
2: Yes, precisely. Um, and you say they were inter- interrogated using hypnosis and drugs. Is this because you've talked to some of the people who are involved?
3: Uh, that's because that's what I was told years later. I didn't know at the time. If I'd have known at the time, I would have probably strongly objected. It probably would have, how should I say, put a dent in my career, to say the least.
2: Well, I, yeah, I understood that, that you didn't learn about it until years later, but the point is they were interrogated using various tools.
3: According to them, yes.
2: And uh, you have any reason to doubt them?
3: None whatsoever. Uh, in fact, uh because of all the what, what has evolved since then, the way the stories have changed, and all the issues, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that they were messed with something terrible.
2: But you have no memory of yourself being involved in any sort of interrogation this that way. Never, never. Uh, is it possible that you were and you don't remember uh, because of the no, way the I interrogations don't... were held?
3: I don't think so. I think because of my position, they already did enough damage with the young troops and spread enough disinformation that they didn't do anything to me. And I had the attention up to the three and four star level.
2: Because of who you were and the rank you held?
3: That's right. And uh, the three and four stars were actually knowledgeable of the event and involved from a distance.
2: When you say knowledgeable about the event, did, does that expand beyond just Bentwaters, but into the UFO field, or was it specifically well, directed? Well, I don't know. I
3: don't know anything about anything of, as far as other events, personally. I just know that not very long after the event, that the <clears throat> the Air Force commander in Europe, the four star, came to Bentwaters. He was given a copy of my memo and tape, and I was never told that. I only learned this after the British found out about it, and they were very incensed at the fact that. He was given the information, and they weren't.
2: Because of the standard of status of forces agreement?
3: I don't know why. Okay. I can only guess that.
2: Oh, and your guess would be?
3: My guess would be that we, we didn't share it with them, and I can't tell you why. I don't know why.
2: Okay, okay. So uh, the upper echelon of the Air Force in Europe and obviously at the Pentagon knew uh, what had happened at Bentwaters? Oh, certainly but you filed now, no... I've been
3: told I've been told and I don't know this for a fact three different sources have told me that were involved that the CIA cleanup doctor who was actually the CIA uh, liaison on UFOs to the White House was present very soon after the event
2: So there were some important people involved in this so There they, were
3: definitely it, some very important people involved
2: and they were taking it very seriously
3: They took it very seriously Okay. In fact, when my tape—I don't know if you read the whole book and know the whole scenario, but my tape was played for the third Air Force commander, who was the Air Force commander in England at a staff meeting, and he uh, asked my boss, then Wing Commander Gordon Williams, is Hulk credible? He said, yes. And he said, uh, the staff, what do we do? And of course, nobody responded. And finally, in his infinite wisdom, he said, Well, it happened off the base. It's a British affair. Case closed. Now, as far as the Air Force is concerned, it wasn't a case closed, but as far as publicly and everything, it was closed.
2: Okay, we'll come back to that. I
3: I I was delighted because this is not career enhancing, believe me. I have to, yes.
2: We have to come back to that because I've got to take a break here. I'm talking with uh, Colonel Charles Halt of Bentwater's fame. I'll have more information up and uh, links to other sources at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And uh, on my blog, when you get a chance to take a look at it, do so. We will be back right after this. So please stick around.
5: Yeah.
6: Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course.
5: We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com.
4: Shamanic healing is the key to personal empowerment. Why? All four levels of our being physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, must be addressed for us to enjoy balanced, healthy, abundant lives. Yet there are few provisions for spiritual or energetic healing. Shamanism, found at the root of all cultures, is a very effective spiritual healing modality. To find quality shamanic healing you can trust, regardless of where you live, look no further than find your Path Home, long distance shamanic healing program. All Path Home, long distance healing practitioners have been trained and certified through Path Home Shamanic Art School change your life, live abundantly. Schedule a long-distance shamanic healing session with Wilda Wiecka or one of her quality practitioners today at findyourpathhome.com. I am
2: joined by Colonel Charles Halt, he of Bentwater's fame, uh, the the landings that took place in the Rendlesham Forest in December of 1980. We were talking about the tape he made during his encounter with the craft on uh, in December of 1980 and how it was not career enhancing. I think I interrupted you when you had a point that you wanted to make, so please make it now.
3: No, I, I just wanted to say that thank goodness uh, the, the staff up through three and four stars believed and it didn't hurt my career.
2: So seeing a UFO didn't didn't adversely affect anything and the fact you had a tape of the encounter uh, sort of substantiated what you had had to say.
3: Well, I carried that tape recorder with me everywhere in other words I didn't like to take notes. When I would go around the base on, you know, traveling out and about if i saw something that needed to be done i'd put it into the tape or i'd say you know we need to do this or forget about that or whatever and i would take and give the tape to the secretary it was a linear system she had a dictaphone and she'd type it up in notes and would have it at the staff meeting so i carried the tape recorder almost everywhere i went
2: so it was unusual that you had it there and that you were making notes about what you were seeing as you moved into the forest
3: no because i carried like i say i carried it all the time
2: now i understand that um John Burroughs was with you during that encounter? Uh,
3: John Burrows. there were three nights of activity, actually there's more than that, but three nights that we were involved in that I know of firsthand. Uh, John Burrows was involved the first night, obviously. The night I went out, John Burroughs, uh, let's see, hitched a ride, I don't know how he got out there. We were already in the forest, examining what was supposed to be a landing site, and John Burroughs was in the background, back 100, 150 yards away. He borrowed one of the police radios. There was a group of policemen there, and he called on the radio to one of the cops that I was with and said, may I come forward and join you? And I told him no. So he was actually out in the forest, yes.
2: Well, this is interesting because I, I had a question to ask you because Penniston, or Burroughs talked about having seen Penniston close to the craft or didn't remember him to, uh, walking up to touch the craft, which happened on the first night, and Penniston wasn't involved on the third night. So you're telling me Burroughs was there on the first night, which I didn't understand, and, and Henny was also there on the yeah. third night as well. That's correct. Okay. So um, he w- he got very close to the craft on the first night. Is that your understanding?
3: He got, I don't know how close. Let me explain. The story from them has changed significantly through the years. If you go back to the first debriefing, by the way, the debriefings that I got, the statements I got were all bogus, so to speak. They were manufactured the best way, especially Cabana sacks. It was typed and was given to him to sign. He said, that's not what happened. His his statement actually says he saw the lighthouse. He said, that wasn't the lighthouse. I know the lighthouse. The other statements, I think, were influenced by the debriefings.
2: So the... Um statements given, I know Penniston disagrees with the statement he signed as well, saying that it had changed significantly from what he had actually said. These debriefings, the records of these debriefings would have gone to the Air Force or gone to the CIA?
3: Actually, the, I don't know who did the briefings, as I told you. I, I know it was agencies from outside the base. Uh, what I did, well, I didn't even know about that at the time. I, After my event, I called the, five or six of them in, the three that went out the first night, plus some of the backup people, and asked them to make statements so I could read them and we could try and figure out what it was. And that's what I got. Those are the statements that are in a lot of the books in different places posted online.
2: But was this after they were interrogated by those outsiders?
3: Yes. But I didn't know that at the time.
2: Understood. Understood. I was
3: pretty naive. I believe what people told me above me. I'm very trusting.
2: Yeah, I I fall into that trap myself, so I understand it completely
3: and totally. You know, the boss says this isn't important. Okay, so it's not important. You know, then years later, somebody grilled you and said, "Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you do something? But didn't you know this?" I said, "But I was told it wasn't important."
2: Yeah. Uh, uh. I was,
3: I was happy when it went away for two years, to be honest with you.
2: <laughs> and probably would be happy if it was still gone.
3: I was furious when my tape got released and the memo got released. In fact, I fought with 3rd Air Force, which is the Air Force headquarters. The then commander, Pete Bent, was a personal friend of mine. And he called me up and said, we're going to release your memo. And I said, I pleaded with him. I said, no, don't do that. Please burn it. He said, what? I said, burn it. Your life and mine will never be the same if you release that. He said, I have to release it. I said, no, you don't. He did.
2: Why? Why did he feel he had to release it? Do you know?
3: Go, ask him. Okay. Well, I'm. I'm See, just... we, there was no copy in the Air Force channels. That's the thing. It was typed in the office on a select typewriter. You know, the old typewriters with the met, little metal ball. Yes. Yeah. I only select, a mar, carbon. Yeah. There's only a carbon manifold, which was a, t- a carbon copy. Uh, and years later, when I wanted a copy, I had to go on the internet to get it. To be honest with you. So when people came into the base and asked for copies of it. We didn't have a copy. It was legitimate. Third Air Force didn't have a copy. They found a copy in the liaison officer's file at Third Air Force. The is, RAF liaison officer, Bentwater, sent his boss at Third Air Force a copy, and that's what was found and released.
2: Well, when you find the, the statement on the internet, that's that's the statement you made. That's the statement you typed up. It is it's correct.
3: Uh, it, it's, that's the one I typed up, yes.
2: It's not somebody that somebody's manipulated in some fashion or anything no, like that? No, no,
3: no, no. Okay. That's legitimate. Just, well,
2: you can understand why I would ask that question. Oh, certainly. So um, who do you know who made the decision to release it?
3: Uh, yeah, a guy by the name of Pete Bent.
2: That was his he was, decision?
3: He was, was acting 3rd Air Force Commander.
2: Was there any inquiry about Bentwaters going on by civilian UFO researchers or anything that might have induced him to release it?
3: Oh, yes. Uh, Two writers in the States, Larry Fawcett and Barry Greenwood, who wrote a book called Clear Intent. We're working with the wannabe uh, Larry Warren. I don't even want to go to Larry Warren. I was
2: going to say, a name we'll try to avoid.
3: Yeah, because it's a real, it's a real fraud. It's a terrible thing that happened, and real disinformation. But anyhow, he was working with them until they figured out he was a how should I say a problem child in lying. And they kept coming to Bentwaters, and they finally went to Third Air Force, and so somebody down there got poking around, and they found it,
2: and uh, and released it to uh,
3: Greenwood. They released and it. They released it to Larry Fawcett and Barry Greenwood in Connecticut. And they shared it with people in the UK, Harry Harris, Brenda Butler, Jenny Randalls, Thought Street, and I don't Lord knows who all else, Mike Sachs. And suddenly it was all over the place. My life got miserable. I mean, I'm at BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, German TV, Japanese TV, Radio War, you name it, are on my doorstep within a couple of days. I had to go into hiding. Uh, did... I was furious. Oh, I understand, I understand.
2: Uh... I was wondering: if was this event classified in some fashion?
3: No, it was not on. Unclass- well, people say it was top secret. Well, some of the stuff that was forwarded, you know, about it may have been, but nothing on the base was classified, even confidential.
2: So, what what I was trying to get at was: Did the name we don't want to mention? Um, he obviously got it from friends who worked in the security service with the security police there on the base. So his telling Fawcett and Greenwood about it violated no military regulation. No, he
3: didn't know about the memo. He just knew something happened. He had talked to some of the participants, primarily uh, one that had been out there the first night and one that was with me. And he picked up their story and elaborated on it. And, you know, here I am. Boy, I need some attention. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to be out there in the limelight, etc.
2: And that's how the whole story got out into the public arena. That's how
3: it got into the public arena. And then he got hooked up with Peter Robbins and they wrote the book Left at the Gate, which is a big bunch of nonsense.
2: And you know, Peter,
3: Pete, Peter, years and years and years to realize and he finally figured it all out.
2: And, and, you know, he repudiated the book and I guess it's been pulled by the publisher. Oh, yes. So there was some good. Well, that even came worse
3: out. than that, Larry Warren is now working with a bunch of frauds in Europe and England. And they're making a movie. Yes, I know. If they call it, it, you know, fiction, that's fine. But to say it's fact is, well, what can I say?
2: Well, when they're making a movie, they'll say based on fact. And, you know, the fact is something happened. And then we run with it from that point.
3: Yeah, well, whatever.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, understandably, you're not happy about that.
3: No. No. That's the only reason I wrote the book. The book was not written to be a bestseller. I don't sell the book. I don't go to places and you know and set up a table and sign books. The book was written only so there was a, a good document out there for researchers and serious people that were interested. That's the only reason.
2: And and I'm delighted to have a copy of the book because it is a massive thing with an awful lot of information in it. Called well, uh, We're
3: not going to re- we're not going to republish it, although John, my co-author, wants to put a supplement up because there's a whole lot more information that's come out since then
2: but you're not inclined to do that
3: well i may work with them i don't know we'll see how that goes
2: okay um, we're going to have to take another break here so we will do so I'm with Charles Halt. We're talking about the Rendlesham Forest case. We're talking about the Halt Perspective, which is a book. It's a big, thick book, and uh, I find the, the layout very pleasing. It's just filled with all kinds of information about other cases and other things going on in the world of the UFO ufology, uh, I guess, from almost the very beginning. So there's an awful lot of information crammed into it uh, and a lot of uh, I guess, inside information about the um, Rendlesham Forest case. I will have on my blog, www.kevenrandall.blogspot.com uh, additional information and links where you can find some good information about the Bentwaters case and other UFO sightings, for that matter. My book, Roswell in the 21st Century, is in a look at the Roswell case uh, as it as it is today, as it uh, has evolved today and and, uh, takes away some of the really nice stuff that we were talking about, but adds, uh, I think, a a note of credibility to the entire case. And of course, Encounter in the Desert talks about the Lonnie Zamora case. I will be back right after this with Charles Halt, and we will return to talking about Bentwaters and some of the other activities that happened there after the events. So please stick around.
0: Until next, we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember, X-Zone Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light.
2: I am back with Charles Holt. We're talking Rendlesham Forest. Uh, While we were... Uh, in, the, in the last segment, we were you, you mentioned something that I, I made a note of. Uh, we've been talking about three nights of events at, um, at Bentwaters, but you said there were more than three nights. Uh, can I get a little elaboration on that?
3: Well, <clears throat> what happened after I left Bentwaters and after it, it all hit the fan, so to speak, uh, I, my email and my name was not there. And I've had probably eight or ten or more, primarily security police, come forward with this happened in 1979, this happened in 75. Uh, strange objects were over the weapon storage area. We actually fired our M16s at it. Uh, strange things jumped over the fence into the weapon storage area. We chased them. All kinds of stories. Uh, some dependent kids that were out in the forest, out there up the mischief, like teenagers occasionally do when they're away from their parents. Uh, confronted some things. I probably have eight or 10, maybe 15 different stories that are uh, very success scary.
2: You know the, obviously you know the people who sent the emails?
3: I know some of them, but I've been able to, I've been able to validate some of them that they were definitely there.
2: Well, that yeah, that was kind of the question. They were there, uh, but you don't know the people personally. Would that be no, correct? No,
3: I, I know two of them personally, the two of the teenagers. And I also... On the following fall, uh, that happened. The, uh, the event happened in December, 26, 27, 28. Uh, the following fall in November, when the British have what they call Guy Fawkes Night. It's a celebration where they set off fireworks and whatnot. <laughs> Guy Fawkes Night in the two, the 1981, the two police patrols at RAF Woodbridge actually saw a cigar-shaped object come in, float silently over the base, huge, maybe. 150 or 200 feet long. They rendezvoused at the base of the air traffic control tower which was closed because we weren't flying and watched it and it left. They didn't tell anybody till they got ready to leave the base and I knew both of them and they were credible. They said we never told anybody because of all the, you know, the hubbub whenever you got involved.
2: So, so, yes, so-
3: sir, there's a lot there's a lot of incidents. It's a strange place.
2: Are are you planning to Uh, If you update the book, are you planning to include any of this information in it?
3: I'll probably put some of that in there. But more than that, uh, information that's come to clarify a lot of the things that happened and a lot of the people and what they've said, and a lot of the stories that have changed, and it's very interesting.
2: Now, I I read in the introduction your statement, and you said um, you believe this to be extraterrestrial in origin. You still uh, believe that? I do. What, uh, why do you believe it's extraterrestrial?
3: Because the there are more than 50 people that witnessed the event the night I was at. The weapon storage area people, uh, three different groups of civilian people, uh, gate guards, different people all over the place from different areas, especially the ones in the weapon storage area, that when they look through binoculars, 10 or 12 power binoculars that the objects we saw in the sky, which all we could see is bright white lights. They were so bright you couldn't discern a shape. They said they were triangular. Several of them saw what they considered to be a large mothership, huge, that actually had objects coming off it like little uh, small orbs or perhaps uh, I don't know what they would be. Uh, Maybe drones. But that's what they saw, which tells me there was something big up there and there was more than one object. Well, we know there were at least five objects, if not more, that I saw.
2: The object you saw, did it touch the ground?
3: No. We actually so, saw several things. We saw first the, the glowing orange-red object, which was in the field in front of us, which was actually dripping or sending off sparks, or that's, that's the best way I can describe it, never touched the ground. It was about anywhere from five to 10 feet off the ground, It moved horizontally. It came toward us into the forest. It moved through the trees, avoiding the trees. It was no longer shedding particles then, by the way. We tried to approach it. It went back out into the field. And as we got up to the fence line to get close, it silently exploded into white objects like fireworks and disappeared. How close did you get to- Then we saw the objects in the sky to the north and two glowing bright white ones to the south, one of which came overhead and sent down a beam.
2: And how close did you get to the object?
3: Uh, in the sky? I would no, when probably... the, you, you said you... Oh, the, uh, the glowing was... red object?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah clo- that was close to the ground.
3: Uh, when we got onto the field, we were probably, my guess is about oh, 150, 200 feet away from it.
2: So you got a good look at it uh, behind yeah, the yeah, light? Yeah,
3: but it was just a glowing glowing object from uh, the dark center. Okay. Yeah. It was between us and the farmhouse, and we were at the edge of the field, and the field is probably, my guess, is two or 300 yards across. It was in the middle of the field, or approximately.
2: So there's a, there was a lot of activity going on around Bentwaters uh, for a number of years. Did, uh, was oh, there yeah. any? Do you in know of any addition?
3: Uh, Please just go ahead. To the north, just to the north of the base is Sizewell B, which is a big nuclear power plant. And people up there have told me they have as many as 30 sightings a month of unusual objects in the sky.
2: And do we have photographs? Do we have any kind no, I of... Don't
3: have any, I don't have any photographs. Well,
2: I understand. But are there photographs available at the, at the site? Uh, the, the
3: I, I pop... don't know. I don't know.
2: Well, this has expanded completely beyond where I thought we were going to go here. So I'm a little flummoxed. Well, the... there's some
3: other interesting things. Uh, RF, uh, Bodsey to the south is where we had the big uh, experimental radar sites during the Second World War. Huge tires you're probably not aware of that. Orford Ness, where the lighthouse is, is where the British worked on all kinds of nuclear stuff, including their nuclear triggers, and did all sorts of very exotic, highly classified stuff. Just to the north of the base is is a small village. Butley Village is the home of British witchcraft. Now, does any of this all fit together? Who knows?
2: It's an interesting
3: area. What, what, it,
2: when you talk about that, it kind of strikes me that we got sort of the same situation in Roswell because in 47, it was the home of the ato- only atomic strike force in the world. You've got uh, the, the White Sands Missile Range launching missiles into the uh, sky, which is 100 miles away. You have the, the Trinity site where they had detonated the atomic bomb and the atomic research going on just north of Santa Fe at uh, uh, Alamogordo, or not Alamogordo, um, but just north of Santa Fe. So it's an area that you would think if you were an alien race coming down to take a look at Earth, these things would interest you. And you seem to be suggesting something of this similar nature there at Bentwaters.
3: Have you ever read the book UFOs and Nukes?
2: Yes, I know I know Robert Hastings very, very okay, well. Okay, well,
3: Robert's a good personal friend of mine. In fact, I wrote the chapter in the book for him, one chapter.
2: And I provided the information about the Roswell case for him, so. Oh, good. So yes, I, I, know, I knew Robert uh, I've known Robert for many, many years. So yes, I've read, I've read the book, but I've, uh, and, and the premise is the, uh, I guess the investigation by the alien creatures of our various uh, war uh, warp capabilities seen around uh, missile sites and that sort of thing. Um, let me take a little bit of a different direction here. I think you mentioned in your book that there had been radar tapes of uh, some of these objects and those were seized by someone?
3: Actually, there were, there's three different radar systems there. There's on the base, the air traffic control tower, which has the radar system, obviously, but it's primarily air traffic control. They actually picked up the object on a scope twice going across the scope. If you've read the book, you'll know that. And they mm-hmm. physically saw the object, glowing orange-reddish object, that went into the forest. R.A.F. Wattisham which is just, oh, 20 miles, 25 miles away, actually picked up a blip and saw it drop off the scope somewhere near where we were. Now, then the British have their own air defense sector, which is Nedisham. Needersham, I don't know what they picked up, but I do know, I talked to one of the controllers, Gary Baker, who said immediately after the incident, a day or two later, uh, highly ranking Air Force people came and people in civilian clothes, and they got all the controllers together and said, if you saw anything, you're not to talk about it. Nothing happened. They confiscated all the tapes, and they said the radars weren't up. They confiscated the logs. Uh, if the radars weren't working, guess what? Something's wrong, because they had two different systems, and they never took them both down. But the radar tapes and the logs were confiscated from Nita Shed. But there were no tapes at
2: um, Bentwater's?
3: Bentwaters didn't do tapes in the control tire, no.
2: Okay, okay. They're
3: strictly air traffic control. So. Um... But the controllers have come online, and, and both of them said, yay. We didn't talk about it because some of our compadres in years before, when they said reported UFOs, they got decertified. So said, we didn't talk about it till we retired.
2: Didn't you mention or did someone mention that the uh, security police logs had been changed or altered or disappeared?
3: Disappeared. There are two different blotters, the police blotter, which is law enforcement and security blotter. They all disappeared. I went looking for them a a year or two later just to see what they said, because I'd forgotten. I'd read them at the time. And the law enforcement blotter, uh, because I talked to the desk sergeant, he was typing, It just put something in there that some lights were seen, they investigated, and there was nothing there. Something to that effect, but the security blotter would have had a lot more in it, but it disappeared too. So somebody someone, pulled, somebody, somebody pulled them.
2: I was going to say somebody came into the base and kind of sanitized everything that would suggest an unusual event,
3: or one of the cops could have, that had access could have done it too. But I would suspect an outside agency did it.
2: Well, why would the why would the uh, uh, military police confiscate uh, the log?
3: Well, somebody might take it for a collector's item.
2: Oh, all right. Uh, we're going to have to take our well, last break. Well, I did,
3: I did a talk one time in Kansas, and I laid my tape recorder that I'd used at the time on the podium while I was talking, and somebody stole it. Oh, man. People, people take things like that.
2: Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to take our last break here. I am joined by Charles Halt. We're talking Rendlesham Forest and some of the bizarre activities that took place afterwards that suggest uh, highly placed interest in the events. I will put stuff up on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And hey, if you get a chance, take a look at X-Zone Broadcast Radio, xzbn.net, because there's a lot of fine programs that may interest you as well. We will be back right after this with Charles Halt, so stick around.
1: Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net.
5: You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV
2: I'm with Charles Halt. We're talking Rendlesham Forest. We're getting an awful lot of, uh, I think, good information here. And before we have to wrap this thing up in a few minutes, let me ask you, um, you're aware of uh, Jim Penniston's notebooks with the bizarre binary code in it?
3: I'm very familiar with them.
2: Uh, Do we have an opinion
3: on those? Mm, Yes, I have some real problems.
2: And can you elaborate a little bit on that? I know that you and Jim are acquaintances, maybe pals, and don't want to say anything bad about him, but, you know, uh, any any insight?
3: Well, I have concern as to when the entries were made and how they were made and some things of that nature.
2: Well, I know I know uh, Peniston and Burroughs have undergone hypnotic regression sessions after they've left the military. Do you think that might have had an influence on some of the Way they remembered the events?
3: Possibly, but I suspect the primary problem is uh, what happened in the forest and what happened thereafter in their immediate debriefing or interrogation, whatever you want to call it. They were neither, none of them were ever the same again. Jim Peniston was being groomed for senior positions and, uh, or, you know, immediate promotions and so on. It never happened
2: so jim peniston was 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 a really good sergeant good good n c o
3: yes, he was a guy they put in the command post and trusted you know to be a liaison with the senior officers and he did very well in fact, that's why he got put put up into where he was after the incident happened, which had nothing to do with it, but he was never the same, and he had issues from then on in his personal life and he can tell you about that I'd rather not go into that.
2: Well, I'm just looking for... He should have for, been
3: promoted three or four times over, if not more.
2: And so he would have ended up at in the top enlisted grade?
3: He should have been.
2: Okay. What about this John... Thing, Bur-
3: this, this thing disrupted him. Well, John Burroughs, John just had some issues. He always did. He wasn't a bad guy. He just, uh, he, uh, how should I say, he tended to be overbearing, and he didn't have many friends, and he was just different.
2: Okay. So you're one, you don't know when he made the binary code then, whether it was right after the event, right after the interrogations, or sometime later?
3: Well, I've had, heard several different stories from people that supposedly were with him, so I don't know. Okay. I have, I have some concerns.
2: So we have, we have multiple nights— of um, the objects being seen, and now we're, we're learning that there were multiple events over a period of years in the Bentwaters area. Definitely. And you've talked to many of the people who are involved in these, these events. I have. And you find the majority of them, oh, I'll phrase it that way, the majority of them reliable.
3: Yes. You believe definitely. what they're saying? Oh, Definitely.
2: Well, what's kind of interesting here, and I hate to bring up the name of you-know-who, but um, things would have gone completely different had not he uh, talked to Fawcett and Greenwood.
3: Probably, because uh, d- despite him, the three ladies, uh, Brenda Butler, Dot Street, and Jenny Randalls, wrote the book Sky Crash, and they had nothing to do with him. I mean, they... They were involved a bit with him in part of it, but they actually got their story from someone who was putting out disinformation and then got bits and pieces of the truth and put it all together to a certain extent.
2: Do we know who was putting out the disinformation?
3: No. Was it uh, official? I know, where, disi- I, know where, I know where it started. It started on the base, but the start, it's, on the base it was motivated by somebody from outside. I know so, the individual who was I know the individual one of the police the, uh, sergeants that was told to put out the funny story. He, I know him, I know who he is, I know who motivated him, but I don't know who motivated them. That's the problem.
2: But what you're saying is they were told by someone outside the base to put out bad information to the to the three women writing the book.
3: That's correct, amongst others.
2: So we've got a real problem here.
3: With I'm telling you there are two good stories. Number one, what really happened, and the even better story probably is what happened afterwards if someone could dig it all out. And I have enough bits and pieces that I'm willing to work with someone to try and put it all together.
2: So we have. Got...
3: I have collected everything from the newspaper clippings to names, addresses, dates, you name it. I haven't thrown anything away. I have three or four file drawers full of stuff and a couple of cardboard boxes full.
2: <laughs> and and your wife is delighted by all of that stuff cluttering up her house.
3: She said, she said "Enough of this."
2: <laughs> I have the same problem with mine. <laughs> we've got to get rid of some of this stuff. Yeah. So, we've got a we've got a great story of um, UFO encounter, a close encounter of the of the uh, second kind at the very least. Uh, there are stories of some of the witnesses seeing some kind of beings is are you familiar I'm obviously you're familiar with those do you accept those
3: no, Nobody that I know or have talked to that's credible has seen any beings
2: it didn't well, Beth Penniston said he went up and he actually touched the craft at some point is that the story that came out later?
3: well the original stories they never got within 50 feet then the next story was and was that John Burroughs tried to touch it and it moved away. And the, the stories have changed. That's why I say they've been messed with, and I'm not sure any of them really know what happened,
2: or, or, or well, remember exactly what happened. I guess would be a yes. proper way of saying it. So we've got. Uh, I, I think what's important here is maybe not the it's sightings itself, but the reaction by the powers to be it to the to the sightings. Would you agree? That's what I'm
3: trying to tell you. There's there's a story there.
2: And I understand that. Uh, but I've been I mean. Saying
3: that for, I've been saying that for years, but everybody's all focused on, well, there was a craft or there was this, there was that, and so on. I say, yeah, that's all true. As far as I know, I know for sure what happened the third night. The first night, I'm not really sure. Well,
2: there was a second night, and, uh, and the lieutenant who was involved was completely and totally freaked
3: out by it. She was air died. I do know that. And I was told, because I, I didn't know until a few days later, I said, where'd Bonnie go? And I said, she had a nervous breakdown. Now, keep in mind, she was a female lieutenant in 1980 in a cop squadron. And she was black. And the guys resented her, I can tell you. And I, so I kind of, how should I say, looked out for her as best I could. Whenever somebody said something, I said, she's your boss. You better listen. But, so I figured the guys just got to her. But something happened to her in the forest. I don't know what.
2: Uh, that would be my But it was something
3: a lot. She was, heard, she was overheard on the radio screaming for help
2: so the implication would be that she interacted with the thing in some fashion that freaked her out.
3: I've located her finally, and I'm not going to tell you where she is. And I sent her a real (laughs) long letter explaining I would support her. She can just, if she would just tell me personally or however she wanted to handle it, and she hasn't responded.
2: How long ago did you?
3: Oh, about six months ago.
2: Okay. Actually, I
3: didn't find her one of the, one of the good researchers. There's some people out there that are really good researchers. I can tell you, they chased her down.
2: Uh, Did she leave the Air Force soon after that? Yes. Oh, so it was something really extraordinary. It was
3: extraordinary. Because she was talented. She was a bright young lady.
2: And would have had a great career in the Air Force? Probably. Was she career-minded?
3: I don't know that.
2: Okay. Well, you know, some people are in the military for a short period of time, and then they they move on to other activities i mean well, even guys was,
3: that's that's what i was going to do i never intended to stay <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah well i was that was how i ended up in vietnam as i was just going well, be... to
3: don't, don't tell me about vietnam i was there quad never mind well but i was
2: going to say i only the...
3: went i only went in the air force to beat the draft to be honest with you despite and despite I... <laughs> what jim's book says i went in there to, to find out about ufos that's nonsense
2: yeah. And I joined the I joined the army to beat the draft as well. And I was told that he, uh, high school graduates could uh, learn to fly helicopters. I thought that was a good deal. So that was how I ended up there. So I think we have a little bit of common in common there. Uh, we're going to have to wrap this up, I'm afraid. It's absolutely fascinating. Is there uh, any comment that I that you'd like to make before we completely sign off here that uh, we may not have addressed?
3: No, I've got a whole lot more information I want to put out someday, and I don't know what the form I'll do, but I'll think about that.
2: So you were right in the middle of the thing, so you know. Well, I was going to say you know exactly what happened, but you suspect you know what happened.
3: I suspect I know what happened, and I suspect I know what happened to a lot of the players.
2: Okay. Well, listen, Colonel Hall, thank you very much for joining us on a different perspective. I appreciate you taking the time and your canter and talking to me this afternoon. Oh, you're I've certainly. You're I've certainly enjoyed our discussion. So thank you once again. Here next, be. next week, I will be joined by Michael Shermer, which I probably shouldn't say in the earshot of Colonel Hall, who is, um, the editor of skeptic magazine. And he is one of the, I guess, major skeptics in the world, but his skepticism isn't just about UFOs. It's about a lot of stuff. And I have some interesting questions to ask him about, uh, the way skeptics operate in the world today and, and how things uh, transpire. And I think it might be a very interesting discussion on skepticism in, in the world. Uh, as I say repeatedly, there will be more information, some links probably uh, to this. Uh, you can listen to the program again. There'll be a link to that uh, at www.kevenrandall.blogspot.com And I would like um people to take a look at Roswell in the 21st century, because I think it'll give them a really good perspective on where the case resides today, what really happened in Roswell, and, and separating some of the wheat from the chaff, some of the stories from the truth. And I think we heard some of the same thing on the uh, Rendlesham case. There's a, you know good stories, and then there's the truth. We need to look at all of that. And, of course, the book Encounter in the Desert, which is about the Lonnie Zamora sighting, That um, happened in 1964 and uh, a lot of other things that were taking place in New Mexico at that time uh, in relation to UFOs and UFO close encounters of the uh, third kind. Anyway, we'll be back in 167 hours. So um, look us up at that time and uh, I think you'll find it an interesting program. Thanks for listening.